Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from TechTables.com, and you're listening to the Public Sector Show by TechTables. This podcast features human-centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events. We offer you a behind-the-mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and hit that follow button and leave a quick rating. Just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves. Craig, thanks for jumping on Tech Tables this morning. Super excited to have you here. It's great being here. I love the opportunity to be able to share with the community and learn at the same time. So thanks for having me, Joe. Love it. So in our podcast intro call, you had mentioned servant leadership as a key tenant of your leadership style. I'm curious where that motivation to be a servant leader comes from. Now, a quick word from one of our brand partners. Nagar was a leading provider of digital government services, partnering with state, local, and federal clients clients on some of their most strategic technology projects. Nagaro offers expertise in digital services, legacy modernization, case management, data and AI, service desk, cybersecurity, and more. Check out Nagaro.com. That's N-A-G-A-R-R-O.com. I love that you had asked me that question in advance because it really made me think about the roots of that. I talk a lot about servant leadership in a corporate world, but that thought really made me think about my upbringing and my parents. My parents taught us very strong values values of love, family, hard work, humanitarianism, social justice, things like that. We're a community. We're a tight-knit family. I watch them as role models. But the one thing that the whole extended family really taught was this concept of humility. And not the humility where you put yourself down. The humility where you bring everybody up with you. So you come together. And so that was a basis of that. I didn't know what servant leadership was at the time, but I knew that concept of I'm actually no better than anybody else and nobody's better than me. That was the upbringing that we had in my family. So that was really neat. But then when I joined the Coast Guard, I have a long sea story about how I got to the Coast Guard, but just a young kid lost, not sure what to do next, dropped out of college, all that kind of stuff. But when I joined the Coast Guard, I got this sense of something bigger than myself. I think the military does that for a lot of people and some corporate cultures do that as well. But being taught that I was part of a team and there was a greater purpose and what we were there doing every day mattered. Actually, I would have the opportunity to even save lives, which I did have the opportunity in my career to go forward with that, but being part of something bigger than yourself. So you started to see that it wasn't just about you. But the kind of the final part to ruin this out, like every young kid who gets promoted and gets more responsibility, it's about me, right? It's about, I'm glad to be part of something bigger, but I'm going to do really well and I want to get recognized and I want to go forward. And one thing the military does for young folks is they give you incredible amounts of opportunity and accountability at a very young age. I got to run my own boat crew and be coxswain qualified and drive a heavy weather surf boat. And I got to do some really cool things. But again, it was about me. And I hadn't really learned the kind of servant leader yet until we had one specific case that went really bad and somebody drowned on that case. And my crew did not respond and react as they were supposed to. And it resulted in the death of a person. And it stuck with me forever. Not only the loss, the tragedy of the event, but I remember when I got back afterwards and my chief sat me down and he said, this is your fault. Not because you couldn't do it, but because you didn't train your crew, because you didn't take care of your crew, because you are there to serve your crew, not to serve yourself. That was the very defining moment to me where I was able to bring all that stuff together and say, you know what, going forward, 
I really need to realize that my job as a leader is to serve those around me, not for them to make me look good as we go forward. And so I've just stuck with that in my career as we've gone forward. That's a really great story. And right before this off camera, we were talking about military books and I actually took a couple up here that I would highly recommend. And at the end of this podcast, we'll have you recommend some more military leadership type books also that blend in the corporate world. I was curious, you have this life and death situation. You have your leader sit you down to really explain the gravity that the team failed and you didn't train the those people and those members on your team to execute at the level that they needed to. How do you take that experience? And I can't even imagine because I've never been in the Coast Guard or the military. How do you take that experience and then translate that now? This is probably 20 or 30 years later for you in the city of San Antonio. Just broad stroke, what does that look like? Kind of the lessons that you took from there to how you're applying it today? I think it comes back to empowering your team to make decisions and to be out on the battlefield, whatever the battlefield is and that you trust that they're going to do what's right and wrong as you go forward. And one thing that I'm really proud of in my team now, my city role here in the last 15 months in the pandemic, as you can imagine, we've been thrown with all kinds of things to go solve. Stand up a mass vaccination center, respond to a week's worth of snow in Texas. Whoever thought of that in the power failures? And we've just been thrown at things nonstop for the last 15 months. And if I had it from the position that I needed to solve all those problems myself, then why do I have 340 people on my IT team? My job is to make sure that they're empowered, that they're ready, that they're trained, that they know the protocols, they know the principles, they know what to do. And when they need help, they know they can reach out and ask me and my management team at any time, what can we do to make this better? And so that is about culture. That really is about building a culture where people feel engaged, empowered, and accountable, not just some command and control, which a lot of people think the military is just about up and down the chain. But when military units work really well, they work at the small team level. When corporate cultures work really well, they're not the senior people telling you what to do. They're empowering the people at the ground. In the Coast Guard, we called it the on-scene commander model. Whoever was on scene was responsible and accountable because you could see what was going on. And if you happen to be an E3 or an E4, which is a very junior person, didn't matter. You were on scene. So we taught that same thing into our corporate cultures that if you're facing the customer, facing the issue, you're accountable. Now, you got to be well-trained. You got to be prepared. You got to be resourced. All those things, which becomes man management's responsibility to make sure you're ready to go engaged and accountable. I love the small team piece. So you said 340 people are on your IT team. Obviously, you can't meet with 340 people on a weekly basis or daily basis. What's the tight knit team for you? The six to eight, what number of folks are directly underneath you? Org charts are the death of that conversation. But command and control matters. I don't want to ever lose that is in an emergency, you got to know where your chain of command is. For discipline reasons, you got to know who your home, we always call it your homeroom teacher right? Who's going to yeah. hire, fire, discipline, all that is responsible. But for good teams to work, I found as a rule of thumb, no more than eight. Yeah. eight. Eight's the biggest team you want. And I know you mentioned the one mission book behind you, but the team of teams book that comes before that from General McChrystal is really about how do you take really good small teams that work well together? How do you make that a corporate culture? Because I know everybody listening can say, yeah, I remember I was a team I was on. It was fantastic. I love that team. And I bet you it was six to eight people. I bet you had a very specific mission. You knew what your objectives were. People knew what they were accountable for. Everybody knew their roles. And man, you could knock it out. Didn't mean you didn't have a little tension and fighting along the way, but yep. you knew that you could cover each other's back and you would get this thing done. How do you do that when you have a hundred of those teams? How do you do yep. that when you have to build a command and control 
internal structure to manage those teams. So what I'll tell you is at times I manage through my org chain, but most of the time I manage to the small teams. I understand where the small teams are and myself and my directs at any time can reach into any small team and ask questions or ask for help. So you're talking about flattening the org. I don't even think of it as flattening. It's about creating the spider web where you can actually work across teams and create this collaboration and this communication. And people feel title doesn't really matter. It's who do I need access to for talent or knowledge in order to move things forward. So I actually meet with my team once a week, all 340 people, we call them J.O. That actually came from the One Mission book, a joint operations forum. And we do commander's intent, we do updates, and we do a little bit of celebration and sharing across the teams. Once a week for 45 minutes, all 340 people are invited to that conversation. And then we have a variety of one-off huddle structures where you could talk with different teams throughout the week. Thank you for sharing. I know this will be beneficial for a lot of other technology leaders who also have teams and who are trying to figure out, especially in the post-COVID world, how do I lead my team when folks are A, not in the office, or there's a hybrid model, or maybe they're 100% remote. No more than A, I really like that. I think that tight-knit group. I have not read Team of Teams. I have done both of these, but I am looking forward to getting the audiobook and diving into it. So it'll be fun. I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett Berkshire Hathaway. And in Berkshire Hathaway's 2015 annual letter, I am one of those nerds that do read the annual letters. <laughs> and Warren Buffett said, much of what you become in life depends on whom you choose to admire and copy. So Craig, I'm curious, who did you choose to admire and copy and why? I love the concept of role models and I teach it all the time. Everything doesn't have to be reinvented. So I advocate all the time, find role models. I've had some great role models. I will tell you, we could have a whole podcast about the chiefs in the Navy and the Coast Guard, the East Lines, that layer, we would call that mid-corporate management. But in the culture of the Navy and the Coast Guard, they're your daddy, they're your buddy. They're the people who drive people. I have a bunch of role models from the Chief Corps, as well as US and my church, my local community. But here's what I warn people about role models. Models. One is you copy their behavior, not their status or their success. I don't know how many times I've had younger folks come up when I was a senior vice president at USA say, Craig, how do I get to be a senior vice president? I said, you're looking for my title or you're assuming some level of success or whatever that may be. That's not what you copy in a role model. You want to see what you like in a behavior. I would then say the second rule is only pick role models that you personally know, because we're all people. We're all broken. We all have all kinds of issues. No matter what you on the face. And when you take a role model and you put them on a pedestal and you don't know that person, you assume they're all good and everything's wonderful. That's not true. So your best role models are people you actually know that are real people who make mistakes and are authentic and don't communicate well at times and say stupid things. But at the end of the day, you say, but I know that person and that's behaviors in that person that I really want to mimic in my career. But the most important rule is negative role models are a thousand times more important than positive role models because we all see things in people that we like and we go, yeah, I want to be better like that. But then we forget about it. But when you see something you don't want to be, you never forget it. You never forget it. And I've got places in my career where I've been near someone and go, when I get to lead, it will not be like that. And it has stuck with me. And then I find myself actually, if I start to do something like that, I get a little 
hair on the back of my neck starts to poke up and go, do you remember you told yourself that 20 years ago, you wouldn't do that? It sticks. I would also say use both. Use your positive and your negative role models, but focus on those behaviors. One of them that I always remembered was somebody who would stand in front of a group and say something, but because I knew that person, I knew he didn't mean it. Now, is that unethical? I don't know, but I knew it was a lie because once I saw him in his normal behavior, he would never do the things he said to people. And I told myself, I will never do that to anybody. I will always say it straight. I will always be as truthful as I can. And if I don't know what to say, I'm going to tell you, I don't know what to say, but I'm not going to do that. So those are things that I think that as you find role models, just apply them to what works well for your behaviors that you want to mimic. That's really good. I like how you have both the positive and the negative. I have not expressed what you had said about the negative, but when I grew up, I didn't grow up with a dad. And so for me, I always said, this is who I will never become, leaving my family, you name the list. And so now I have my own kids and the whole thing. And it is funny to reflect right now in real time as I think about the type of person that I am. And you think, okay, so I definitely didn't want to be that. And then I even think about vocationally when I was younger, all all of the different companies that I worked at previously from the movie theater, we'll just say when I'm 14, all the way up to now and the different leadership styles. I think the negative actually really stands out a lot. I don't want to do that. I don't want to lead that way. I don't like how that person communicates. So Joe, think about that because if you look at role models as somebody who they have a lot of money, so I want to have a lot of money. They have a lot of power. I want to have a lot of power. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about right. people, we're talking about building your own personal character, right? Yep. And so behaviors build character. What you say mm -hmm. and what you do builds character. And so can I promise you that if you find a good role model, you're going to make a lot of money? No. But if you follow the behaviors of a good role model, will you build your character? Yes. So if you don't want to build your character, then don't bother. Right? Yep. That's what I tell people. So this role model thing is only if you want to improve yourself. If you want to be a better person, a better leader, a better manager, all those things, then you aspire positive and negatively to find these things to improve yourself, not just to get the wish list. Very different approach. Yeah. You you sum it up perfectly. Behaviors build character. And I'm actually huge on character. Everything will then flow out of that. And then remember, multiple behaviors of multiple people build culture. So when you're an individual, your behavior builds your character. But when you have a group of people, including your team of eight, the collection of their character is the culture of your team. And then when you build multiple teams, that becomes the culture of your company. So a lot of people think culture is a top-down thing. It's not. It's the collection of all the behaviors and the character of your people that build your culture. This is great. I'm going to give this as a motivational talk tomorrow at our next basketball game before to the eight guys <laughs> who are on my team. This is great. So I love this. I'm always looking for a new talk and this is really good. So to, to keep going deeper, there's a leadership expert. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. Uh, I really like him, Craig Groeschel. He has a podcast, the Craig Groeschel Leadership Podcast. And I would definitely recommend it to anyone listening. Craig has talked in past episodes about leading and you've talked about it a, a little bit on this podcast. And I think other CIOs would be interested to hear from you, Craig, how you lead up to who you report to. And then maybe also as a second part, not to make this question so long, but how do you see people on your team leading up? When I worked in the U.S., very large organization, very defined structure, it was a little bit narrow in the sense that you knew who your boss was. It was very kind of command and control at that level, just to keep that structure. But in the city, which I think is a little bit more like a lot of other organizations, I have a boss. I have a homeroom boss who happens to be the chief financial officer. I know that for those of you who are in technology, there's pros and cons of working for the CFO. It works very well in the city here. But I also have lots of other bosses 
to your point. I actually worked indirectly for the city manager who was like our CEO. So I have to manage up to many people, I guess is what I'm trying to get to. When I was a young executive, somebody told me, no matter what, make your boss happy. That's how you'll get performance. That's how you'll get promotion. That's how you'll get recognized. Worst advice I ever got. So anybody who tells you that, just make your boss happy is a lazy mentor. So please, if somebody's told you that, question it. What I've found is you got to build a relationship with your boss first. So when I came to the city and the CFO hired me and we had sat down, the first thing I asked him was, what do you want to solve? And he was like this and that. And I'm like, no, give me some very specific things that you think need to be solved. And then what I would find in that conversation was there were things that were personally affected him in his role. And then there were things he knew that would make the city better, the city organization better and our residents better if we did that. So I got this list of things that were important to him. I didn't know any better. I'm new. So I need my boss to explain that to me. But what we were really doing wasn't building a task list as we were building trust. Did yeah. I trust him? Was he setting me up for something? Was he just giving me junk work to go do? Was this really what he said in the interview process when I came in about joining? Did I trust him? And could he trust me? What did he need from me in order for me to show that he could trust me? Like not I wasn't going to be trustworthy after the first meeting, but he was laying out for me, if these things happen, I'm going to trust you. And then that builds credibility. So trust comes from credibility. Am I credible? Can I say I'm going to do something and actually do it? Or am I just going to blow smoke to make you happy? So what I've learned with all my bosses and everybody's different. Everybody has a different style. You have to know your audience, but at its core, can you build trust with them? Can they build trust with you? And once you establish that trust, now it's about managing expectations. So after trust was built, I will tell you most of the time between me and my bosses right now are just me being able to explain the what's and the why's and setting expectations of when things will be done or how we will do them. I never commit to something my team can't do. And I never commit to something I wouldn't do myself which means sometimes my bosses aren't happy with what I tell them. But because they trust me and I think I've proven credibility, they may not like it, but they know it's true and they know we're going to work through it. It doesn't mean they'll tell me, hey, I still want you to do something right? and we'll keep working through that. But it's an open relationship. We can do that. I've been in some relationships where I've been task managed by my boss. And I bet you many of your listeners are feeling that right now. My boss just tells me what to do and my job is to get it done based on their timeline. That is not a good leadership model. We all have tasks to do but we got to do them within a kind of a shared expectation setting. Again, you're hitting home on a lot of really great stuff. I like the worst advice piece a lot, how to make your boss happy. I think there's a certain level of emotional intelligence that leaders have to exude and have in order to actively be an effective leader. One of the most recent examples I have, it wasn't actually in the workplace, but it was with my wife. It was her birthday. And she had said, hey, this is what I would like for my birthday. But because I'd built that relationship with her over time, when she told me what she wanted, I thought about it and I said, no, that's not what you want you're not happy. It doesn't give you that spark. You just threw something randomly off the top of your head. So I actually told her, no, I'm not going to get you that birthday gift. So she comes back and she goes, okay, I'm actually really excited about this one. I think the same thing leaders have to have when you have that relationship, you can really understand going past the surface level. And you mentioned that too. Once you build that trust and you have that credibility, you can push back a little bit or nudge a little bit more to really figure out, hey, what's important to him or her 
what's important to the city and really being able to dive in. And then that way on the receiving end, they're just not going to hand you a bunch of tasks. They're going to see how valuable you are also to their team. But you got to prove credibility first, right? Because if you're not credible, it's a very hard conversation to have. So whatever that's right to do in your job or relationship, you prove your credibility, you build trust, and then it opens up that conversation. And someone will say, my boss only cares about themselves. It's probably not true. I'm not saying it can't be true, but your boss may have a tough time articulating why those things are important to the organization, not only themselves in that sense. But you can have that dialogue with them if you're in there. Now, I know your listeners are going to say, Craig, that's crap. Not in my organization. My boss doesn't treat me like that. My culture is not built like that, blah, blah, blah. I've been in that situation too. And I have walked away from positions and jobs because of that as well, or gone to somebody else and said, this isn't going to work. So at some point, you've got to say, am I just doing what my boss has told me to do? And I'm just trying to make them happy. Or do I believe in what I'm doing? And I like the people I work with and we're going to work together. Yeah, that's fantastic. Craig, as a technology leader in a forward-thinking city, how do you imagine the future of the digital workforce in San Antonio? All right, so can we start with something that's a little bit of a pet peeve? I don't like to call it the digital workforce. Uh, when did we, when can we remember not being digital as workers at some level? So this thought that we're moving to a digital workforce or becoming more of, I just, I feel like we've gone past it. And nothing else, the pandemic has made people who weren't digital be digital in order to in order to get their work done. So to me, what I'm really focusing on is a distributed workforce. It's a little different in kind of the way you think about it. But the concept of how do you lead with trust, engagement, building morale, and creating autonomy with your workers, no matter where they are or when they work. That's where I think I've been pushing conversations in the city. We've got about 11,500 employees in the city. Many of them are first responders, fire and police, as you can imagine. But about 6,000 people who do office work, if you want to think, variety of different jobs. And when the pandemic started, we actually moved about 3,000 of those people home immediately as a safety, just like every other company did. But what I found out in that was there were only several hundred of those 3,000 that really had worked from home before, right? Now, that didn't mean they weren't in digital workforce, but they did it in their office. So we got very focused on where people work and when they work. Are they at their home or in the office? Are they working nine to five or are they working a different shift? And what has really tweaked in the last several months as we've come back to a return to work strategy, how do we bring these people back? Because it's safe for them to come back is do they have to come back? And so now this concept of a distributed workforce has really taken root. What environment, where and when, is the best for that person to be most productive? And let them decide. Oh my gosh, that's never happened before. Managers don't let people decide when and where they're gonna work. We expect them to be in their chair at nine o'clock and I wanna be able to see them and when they go on coffee break, we gotta break that. We gotta break that to If you believe that your people are smart and have autonomy, then our job as leaders is to make sure they clearly understand the objectives and outcomes of their job and let them go and figure it out. Now, that's really hard if your job is a customer service window and your job is to meet the customer there and take an order and do something. I get it, but there's some still ability in there. But for most technology workers, for most knowledge workers, for most professionals, the days of 
tell me when and where to work are gone. So now the onus is on the supervisors and the managers. Do we know how to mentor, coach, performance manage, discipline, all those things to people when we can't see them or at least don't see them all the time? And it's our job to make sure that we build engagement and autonomy and make sure they're productive and the outcomes are being achieved. It's a very different model going forward. And as we're bringing people, quote unquote, return to work back into, we're giving them the option. Do you want to go back to the desk you used to sit at? No. Okay. Do you want to work in a different way? Do you want to work at a different time? What is the best way for you to achieve the goals of your job for the city while giving you flexibility and autonomy and making you more engaged at the same time? I don't have a formula for that yet, but I know that's the direction we need to go. Oh, I love that you said distributed. That is a that is a really great term. I mean, yeah, the technology's been around for years or decades, just being able to work. And I think figuring out the distributed workforce, I think is really a game changer for organizations and it allows the city of San Antonio to compete with the private sector as far as labor force hiring and that whole piece of it. So I like what you said, and their most productive hours, I think really figuring that out, especially for, yeah, the knowledge workers, some people are really productive at 4 a.m. I'm probably a weirdo in that sense where I'm very productive early in the morning, and I often will not podcast after one o'clock because I'll fall asleep, And but I have a window where I am hyper productive, and I try and leverage that period, and then just understanding that, and so I think workers especially knowledge workers, figuring that out and having the leaders have that trust and autonomy with their team but, is going to be a game changer. But think of the difference, Joe. The Joe shifts from a worker is supposed to do A, B, and C and show up between nine to five. And from an HR perspective, are you doing your job? To the onus becomes the supervisor, right? Yep. That's the sh big shift I see in this model is that as senior leaders, we need to be better training our supervisors to be better mentors and coaches and set expectations so they can help their teams actually achieve and be more productive. So we're going to go back to the book, but team of teams is actually doing that. When you get a really good performing team, how do you actually create that same culture that you had on a small team across your organization? And you get that not from creating command and control, not from telling them what to do top down. You get them from creating these intersections, these collisions between teams. And that's where managers and supervisors have to say, you know what, my job's not to do the work myself. My job is to serve that team. My job is to make sure that team has the, doesn't matter where, when, how, they understand the goals and objectives. They're engaged, they feel autonomous and they can go and they want work. It's a very different teaching model as we go through it. Yeah. And I remember even I, I worked at this property management software company called Yardy Systems. I don't know if you've heard of it. Or I know the name. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. In Southern, they're based here in Santa Barbara. And when I had first started and I was very, I was junior and, and it was nine to five, sit in the chair, which I think there's in the beginning, there's probably some good benefits to that, especially yeah, like when you're right out of college, <laughs> but eventually you get to a point where you start to question and I worked as, I think what they call like a technical account manager. So I was doing technical, basically technical customer service, writing SQL scripts and talking to the folks across the various agencies in, in cities. And so 
but I always remember asking my supervisor, so we, we have uh, go to meeting or whatever. This is, I think, seven years ago, eight years ago, nine years ago. And why do I have to sit in my chair and do this? And it was kind of one of those answers where it's, this is just the way it is. And right. <laughs> now you, I can kind of laugh because I work home for the last couple of years, but I do remember this. And I love that how you put, it does put the onus on the supervisors to provide the leadership necessary to grow and trust in that whole team aspect. So I really like that. And so now you're back to culture. Does the supervisor feel empowered to make decisions in your situation? What if the supervisor said, of course you should be able to work from home, but my boss will kill, kick my butt if I let you do that. That's not the culture you want. So it's the same autonomy you want to put to the supervisor that they can work with their team to say, what is the best way for us to get things done? And one of the things I teach is if your first 90 days on the job, I really want you to be in the office because you got to meet people, right? And you've also yeah. got to understand how it works. So to your point, so during your probation period, maybe that's not the right thing. If you're a performance issue, I, you know what? I'm not going to let you work at home either, right? Or on yeah. shifts. I want to have a little bit more control, but you've proven you need someone to help manage your performance. That's a little different model. So what you get back to is the supervisor starts to say, what's the right way to work with this employee to give them the maximum flexibility to get them engaged, but still to meet the operational needs and productivity of the team. And then if they say, you're allowed to go home, that's good. I, as their boss, can't go, that was a bad decision because then I squash all that. So I got to yeah. let them work through that as well. I have to hold them to team objectives. So if your team doesn't meet your objectives, now I come back and go, what's going on your team? I'm meeting your objectives. It becomes very clear about the outcomes we want not telling them how to do it. Yeah, nope, that, you nailed it. I love that. And shout out to Yardy Systems. I actually really enjoyed my time there. I, I think perspective eight years ago, when, when nobody was really working from home. Not too many people were, that wasn't a thing. So just having that perspective, but I really enjoyed my time there. And I, I remember the first time walking in in Santa Barbara and Galita to, to the office and the team lead was drawing a web server and a database. And I looked like a baby lamb. I didn't know what that was. I knew some accounting, but it, I, now I host a technology podcast. So the way, it's really funny. So I, I'm kind of curious, what advice do you have for senior type folks or directors of IT who aspire to be CIO someday? So let's be clear. I never aspired to be a CIO and I just kind of, I in my own career have just kind of moved into different places where the team needed me. I've been a chief strategy officer. I've been a chief procurement officer. I've now been a CIO. I was a head of digital for several years. So I've done different roles. So in, for me to answer that question, it's not like I sat back one day and said, I want to be a CIO. How do I get there? Not my style. My style has been, hey, take me where you need me. Give me problems to solve. Let's go work on that. But to that point, I want to make sure I give advice because a lot of people do want a very specific career path and it's different in the technology. So my first piece of advice is, first of all, to define what kind of CIO you want to be. Because what I found is there's a, it's a very broad term for a lot of different roles in the industry. Some CIOs are really CTOs. They are technical experts. I have the luxury on my team of having a CTO report to me. So he is responsible for technical architecture. He's, he is the technical expert. I don't have to be that. But some CIOs, that's the expectation is you're really good at that. So understand that's what, if that's what you want to be. 
Some CIOs are more like COO. And I would say in my role in the city, I tend to play more of that role. I have a horizontal responsibility as an integrator, governance strategy across 42 different departments in the city and their technology needs, their operational process needs. So sometimes I feel like a C and then other times I feel like more of a vertical CIO and I'm a department director of IT and everything that goes with that as well. So all I'm saying is you may not be able to pick what kind of CIO you want to be. I just want you to be aware that not all CIOs are the same when you go and you talk to different corporate environments. But what I tend to do is ask people to align their skills, look at their skills. Where do they see their skills growing over time? And when you say that to somebody, especially in IT, you go to their technical skills and they pull out their resume and tell you every certification, every college course, all those different things. I think of three pieces of a pie when I talk about skills. And the first one is your technical skills, which you've got to be solid. If you want to be a database administrator, you better be able to know how to do that. If you want to be a CTO type person, you better have very strong architecture technical skills as you go forward. But what I tend to find is a, a CEO, that's only one third of the pie. The second part of the pie is your grit and perseverance, your individual contribution that you bring to the table. Can you get knocked down and get back up again? Can you take calls 24 by seven in a five day event and be okay with it? Can you speak truth to power, stand up in front of people of title and say respectfully and professionally, this is what my team can do. This is what my team can't do. Can you solve for a breach when breaches happen? Because a big part of our role is physical data and cybersecurity as well. You don't have to be the expert, but you got to be the first place where everybody's going to poke you in the eye and say what's going on. That to me is grit and perseverance. And I look for that at a CIO level, but I also look for it for everybody in my team. Are they going to come to work and are they going to fight the fight when you need to? That's the second piece of the pie. But the third piece of the pie is teamwork. And so now we're going to go to a book you're going to ask me about later, right? But the ideal team player, Patrick Lencioni, right? Are you humble? Are you hungry? Are you smart? Can you work with others? Do you want to serve the team? Do you want to be part of a team? Do you want the team to win or do you only want yourself to win? So in that sense, I've seen CIOs that are fantastic, that can do all three of those things. But then I apply that same model to my individuals and my management team as well. And I ask them, can they manage that way? So once you've kind of assessed yourself in those three buckets, then the last thing to do is just have the courage to call the CIO and say, how do I get your job in a very professional way? Craig, I'm interested in your position. What can we do? I said, then let's talk about it. But I'm going to talk about you in those three buckets, not just your technical skills, because now I'm going to give you some advice, mentoring, coaching about where I think in those three buckets you need to grow. And now, baby, I'll assign you some role models to look at. I'll give you some places to go experiment. I'll put you on a project team. I need to see you demonstrate. But if you have the courage to come to me and say, Craig, I'd like to have your job or something like that in my career, I'm immediately going to say, all right, let's talk about your skills and let's see how we can apply that as we go forward. I love it. You mentioned grit. Did you ever read Angela Duckworth's book, Grit? Okay. 
So she's got a really great book out there. I'll also link to that in the show notes. She's a professor, I think, at the University of Penn. And she wrote a fantastic book. And so on grit, which I think sometimes people think is just a natural talent, but actually how you can grow grit. And I'll attest, having ran the LA Marathon, I grew my grit in the training process in order to get to there. So, and I love what you said about perseverance. I actually have a, I think maybe on our podcast intro call, but because we have viewers, I actually have this over here. Let me see if I can reach it. Persistence. I always love this now, not giving up until you succeed. So... Normally, this is actually hanging on a wall, but the, I had to move it. My toddler climbs in, into my office many times, so it wasn't high enough. So now it's on the floor until I figure out where he's not going to go. And Joe, there's a list of attributes, right? If you think of that one piece of the pie as teamwork, one as technical skills and domain, and then that last pie, it's very personal, right, in my mind. Yeah. So I always use grit and perseverance kind of at the top, but there's a, there's a list of attributes in there that people look for in, in not only a good leader, but somebody, because it's not just about leading people, right? But also it's about your own personal balance. It's about your own ability to say, yeah, if you want me to take a wall, I'll take a wall, but I'm not gonna leave bodies along the way. And so that is an individual, somebody say that's a good team player. No, those are characteristics of you as an individual. That's how you choose to lead. It's how you choose to execute. At the end of the day, all the stuff is really cool, but if you're in a corporate culture, you got to get things done, right? So credibility comes from execution. So it's about how you execute it with your teammates around you. Oh, that's great. Credibility comes from execution. I know in the podcast, I can edit out the pauses, but for those who are listening, I'm on three pages of notes right now. So, and I'm the one doing the interview. So if you're listening back or watching this, you should definitely get a notebook out because Craig is dropping a lot of really valuable stuff. Okay. So I know we're running out of time. Let's, I want to give you a moment though. Can you brag on your team in the city of San Antonio? What's your favorite win? What are you most proud about? So what I'm most, most proud about is, I mean, and you're going to be able to talk to lots of people about the world in the last 15 months. I, I remember January of 2020, we were a little advanced in the pandemic here because some of the folks that, were, that came from China had come to Lackland Air Force Base as part of the first quarantine folks with COVID. And none of us knew what that was. We just knew they were coming to San Antonio. They were quarantined. We were going to figure out they'd come off a cruise ship. We were going to figure out what this thing was. But at that moment, like our whole team started going, hey, we probably need to put a little bit of our business continuity plans in place. What if kind of discussion? So your IT professionals will clearly know that we are trained to respond to these outages and incidents. We know what to do. But none of us saw this as a 15-month event. We all, we had no idea what it was going to be. So what I'm most proud of is I turned to my, not just my IT team, my extended management team, 200 people across the city. And we said, if this goes bad, what would it look like? And we actually built a scenario that we said, the best we can tell is our employees will get sick and they won't come to work. Now, none of us knew the extent of deaths or any of that kind of thing that we had at the time. What we just knew was employees were going to get sick. And if employees couldn't come to work, how are we going to run the city? We're 2 million people in the city of San Antonio. 
500 square 500 square miles of of facility over 550 physical facilities services that we provide and so what we did is we built the scenario that half of our employees would be sick and so what would we have to do to shut down services what would we do to mothball things what would be our highest critical priority how would we continue to respond to the pandemic which again we didn't know what to do at the time while recovering and rebuilding things as we are going forward. So we kind of built this model really fast off business continuity planning, which is a great practice in our in there. And then we shut down the city in basically eight days once we had our first kind of community spread in San Antonio. And for the next 14 months, we have been on this incredibly high tempo where every problem has been thrown at us, stand up a service, help people who are being evicted, what are you going to do about homeless people? How do we do mass vaccines? Anything you can imagine has been thrown at my IT team and my executive team across the city. And I mean my in the sense that we are just so bonded together. We all call ourselves my because we're so tight together now. And the answer was, just give us a few minutes to think about it and we'll figure out a way. And so what we're back to is these young people on the front line and I don't mean young just in the age, but a lot of times in their job position, they're just maybe the junior people who just say, I'll take an extra shift. Send me somewhere I've never gone before. Put me in a different job because you need it. I'll work seven days a week if I have to. And just watching these city employees, which if, if you take a stereotype, government employees have got to be lazy. Government employees are not, can't be working that hard. I have witnessed 11,500 people who have worked from home, worked from the office, worked wherever they need to work, stand up and solve problems on a daily basis. And here we are today feeling like, okay, maybe we're finally past it. And the tempo is just as fast as it was 15 months ago. So what I worry about in there, not only do I brag on them, is as a leader, there's a fatigue that sets in at some point where you just say, I can't do this anymore or the effects of this, of what we have put our people through and what they have risen up to do three years from now, we have no idea what those effects are gonna be on people's performance, on, on, their, on their mental health, on all those other things that we're going through. So it's not war. I don't wanna make it sound like that in a combat military sense, but it is service over self. It is doing anything that's required to solve for the residents of our city when they need it and I think what we then owe as our as the management team here is to make sure we can see the downstream effects on their families, on their performance, on their teams that they've been working on as we come out of this and go back to a sense of, I'm not calling it normal, but back to a regular tempo. And if you go back to team of teams, you'll learn a lot about tempo and you can't live at a high tempo for a long period of time. And that's what we've been doing. So I've seen some pretty extraordinary things. That is fantastic. I'm really excited. I know Team of Teams is now going to be on top of my list, but the tempo piece really resonates. Favorite book, as we wrap this up, favorite book, favorite podcast? So I'm going to, my wife might, she just walked in, so she might hear me say this. I'm not a big podcast guy, but when she and I drive, she loves to put on podcasts. So I listen to anything she put on. And she put one on yesterday, which is Renegades, Born in the USA, which is okay. President Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen. Oh, I, I, she's, you recognize the voice? I'm like, wow, that's Bruce Springsteen. So, and the two of them talking about being fathers and husbands 
and I guess as I went and read a little bit about it this morning, because I was very impressed with the podcast, they were really trying to talk about topics that unify us back to the American story, things that bring us back together as individuals in America, not break us apart. And so two very different people, but it was, uh, I'm so impressed just to hear their views on fatherhood and being great husbands. That's great. Uh, favorite book. I know you've said team of teams, but is that the favorite? I, you know, I actually, I love it because it's been a great platform to launch off of, but I think the one I'll keep coming back to, I told you I was going to bring up was the ideal team player by Patrick Lencioni. I really like that concept of that piece of the pie that we talked about, which is teamwork, this kind of focus on humble, hungry, and smart. And what are those attributes that make you a great team player, not an individual, not a technical expert, but now you can start to see who is going to be good on a team and where you can work to be a better teammate. That's fantastic. That's going to wrap up. That's going to wrap up our time together. I will actually be in Texas pretty soon in June. I uh, in the Waco area. So I know that's, I think, probably between San Antonio and Austin. So somewhere <laughs> just, between. Joe, have you seen how big Texas is? <laughs> I, yeah, I live in California, so it's pretty big too. So I've done some road trips. But Craig, if you want to meet, I'm willing to meet you in right. San Antonio. Okay. All right. Maybe we can make that happen. Uh, <laughs> we'll find out. Thanks for the time, Craig. I really appreciate it. And uh, you can find Craig on LinkedIn and Twitter and looking forward to releasing this episode. I appreciate the time, Craig. Thank you, Joe. This is great. Craig, where do you hang out? LinkedIn, Twitter, what's your spot? Um, I only on Twitter because my wife sends me stuff, but actually I do love to uh, to share a lot of city stuff from Twitter. So I am CG underscore guardian on Twitter and you'll you'll see a lot of Coast Guard and city stuff on there. But I do spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, Craig dash Hopkins on LinkedIn You'll see a lot of leadership stories. You'll see a lot of mentoring and coaching and sharing and trying to build other people up along the way. I think this is a big part of what we, we try to do on social media there. That's great. Love it. You can head over to LinkedIn or Twitter to connect with Craig. And if you're not following me on LinkedIn or Twitter, please connect with me. I love sharing content and lessons that I'm learning all the time from CIOs and other industry leaders. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from techtables.com, and you're listening to the Public Sector Show by Tech Tables. This podcast features human-centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders. Through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events, we offer you a behind-the-mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts podcast and hit that follow button and leave a quick rating. Just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves. 